I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. And we are now in our fifth in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. Last time we talked about how the cell uses reactive oxygen species to control its energy metabolism according to its abilities to deal with the energy demands. Today we're going to be talking about how the cell regulates its energy metabolism according to its need for ATP. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? There's really two principles that we want to be thinking about to understand how the activity of the electron transport chain and the citric acid cycle are regulated together according to the needs of the cell for ATP. The first of those is the principle that chemical reactions are going forward at rates that are directly proportional to the concentration of the substrates, or we could say the reactants. The second principle is allosteric regulation. So let's talk about the first principle first. What's demonstrated on the slide is that the electron transport chain, which actually consists of dozens of electron transfers, can be simplified into the concept that it's one reaction. And if we look at it that way, we could say that reactants are NADH and FADH2, oxygen and ADP, and products are NAD+, FAD, water, and ATP. And what that means is that as electrons are taken from NADH and FADH2, they become oxidized to NAD plus and FAD. And as those electron tr electrons tr go through the electron transport chain, their energy is used to synthesize ATP from ADP. And what is attracting them down that chain is the attractive forces of oxygen which is going to be the final electron acceptor and become water. Now, ATP utilization causes ATP to go to ADP. ATP utilization isn't part of this bigger electron transport chain reaction. It's other cellular processes. For example, you're contracting your muscles. Your muscles, in order to contract, are plowing through the pool of ATP and leaving ADP left over. Now, when we talked about enzymes, we said that the concentration of reactants is a major determinant of the rate of a chemical reaction. And that's simply because there's more of the reactants available. 
if you imagine the simplest chemical reaction of A colliding with B to make C, then if you add more A, you're going to get more C because the probability of A colliding with B is greater. If you add more B, the same thing happens. If you add more both, the same thing happens. Well, similarly, if you add ADP into this mix, there's more ADP available to react with ATP synthase, or I should say to react with phosphate catalyzed by ATP synthase to make ATP. And so that reaction is going to go forward. And in the way we've simplified this, that reaction is the oxidation of NADH to get NAD+. And it is the oxidation of FADH2 to get FAD. So if we think of the electron transport chain as one reaction, then ADP concentration increasing, simply because you're using energy at a greater rate, is enough to automatically speed up the oxidation of NADH and FADH2. Now, in reality, this is actually a series of dozens of reactions. But the principle is the same. It's just a chain reaction that leads backward from ATP eventually to the oxidation of FADH2 and the oxidation of NADH. Now, the result of this is that concentrations of NAD plus and FAD are increasing. Well, they happen to be the reactants in many of the reactions that occur in the citric acid cycle. And so if there's more NAD plus and there's more FAD, the citric acid cycle is going to increase its activity, not because of any system of regulation yet that we're talking about, but simply because there's more of the reactants and you always get a faster reaction when you have more reactants. So the first principle that ties the rate of cellular respiration to the rate of ATP utilization, in other words, aligns the rate of ATP production with the need for ATP, is the fact that by the simple laws of chemistry, when you have substrates increasing, you will get faster reactions. The cell doesn't need to do anything to cause that to happen. No evolution needed to take place in order to make that happen. That's the basic laws of chemistry. Now, while the cell exploits the laws of chemistry to simply allow the rate of cellular respiration to increase when it needs more ATP, it has also evolved to layer on top of that a system of allosteric regulation that augments it. And the first enzyme that's allosterically regulated is isocitrate dehydrogenase. We previously saw that acetyl-CoA drops its acetyl group off to condense with oxaloacetate and form citrate. Citrate's converted to isocitrate by aconitase Aconitase is regulated by oxidative stress. Now the next enzyme, isocitrate dehydrogenase, is what converts isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate. Isocitrate dehydrogenase is allosterically regulated by 
ATP, NADH, ADP, and calcium. ATP and NADH inhibit this enzyme, while ADP and calcium activate it. Well, why would this be? If ATP is accumulating, it's because you're not using up ATP and you don't need as much of it. If NADH is accumulating, it's because you weren't making ATP, so you weren't oxidizing NADH to form NAD plus in the electron transport chain. When you use less energy, ATP and NADH accumulate at the expense of ADP and NAD plus. As they accumulate, ATP and NADH both allosterically inhibit isocitrate dehydrogenase. Similarly, when you're not utilizing ATP, you also have less ADP, and you get less allosteric stimulation of the enzyme. Combined, that slows down the enzyme. Conversely, if you are, say, exercising, and you have a very high demand for ATP, it's because you're converting all the ATP to ADP. So you have less ATP and more ADP. In order to produce the ATP, you had to oxidize NADH to NAD+. So you have less NADH. Because you have less ATP and less NADH, you lose the allosteric inhibition of isocitrate dehydrogenase. And because you have more ADP, you gain allosteric activation of isocitrate dehydrogenase. And so the combined effects of these allosteric regulators is for isocitrate dehydrogenase activity to increase whenever the cell needs more ADP and to decrease whenever it doesn't. Now, you may be a little bit curious, why is calcium here? Well, normally, calcium ions are at extremely low concentrations inside cells except as stored in specialized cellular vesicles. Most of the calcium in your body, 99% of it, is in the extracellular matrix of your bone. The other 1% is mostly either extracellular in the blood or the extracellular fluids, or inside these specialized storage vesicles so that it can be released at the appropriate time in response to other signals, usually in order to activate the cell. So, for example, perhaps the most well-known example of this, which is taught in any anatomy and physiology class, is that release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum of contracting skeletal muscle is the stimulus that causes the muscle to contract. So you have your brain or your autonomic nervous system telling a muscle to contract. The sarcoplasmic reticulum is a fancy word for the endoplasmic reticulum of muscle cells. When your nervous system tells the muscle to contract, the calcium gets released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum goes over to the contractile proteins of skeletal muscle 
and initiates a cascade of reactions that cause them to hydrolyze ATP, take its energy, and use it to contract. If you're contracting muscle, you must need more energy. In fact, what you're doing is instead of waiting to use the ATP to start making more of it, you get the calcium simultaneously activating the muscle contraction and immediately going over to the citric acid cycle and activating the enzymes. And that's a way of preparing in slight advance for knowing that you will, you know, within fractions of a second, begin plowing through that supply of ATP so you can immediately begin making more. Lo and behold, the next enzyme of the citric acid cycle is also allosterically regulated. This is alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase. We're going to talk a lot more about this enzyme later, but for now we'll note that alpha-ketoglutarate is converted to succinyl-CoA, and the enzyme that catalyzes that is alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase. Alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase is inhibited by NADH. It's inhibited by ATP. In that sense, it's exactly the same as isocitrate dehydrogenase. It's stimulated by ADP and calcium. That's the same too. The only additional layer here is that high concentrations of succinyl-CoA inhibit the enzyme, and that's a form of negative feedback, saying you've made enough succinyl-CoA, and we'll talk about in later lessons why that might be layered on there. But the allosteric regulation of alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase is remarkably similar to isocitrate dehydrogenase, and it's all communicating the same thing. When your cell is being activated via calcium, increase the activity of the enzyme. When ATP is being used up and NADH is being used up, increase the acti activity of the enzyme. When you're at rest and you don't need ATP and you're not using up that energy, decrease it. Now, when we looked at reactive oxygen species, we saw that they don't only inhibit the citric acid cycle when the demand on the mitochondria is excessive, but they also, if that isn't sufficient to, to relieve the burden on the mitochondria, will migrate out of that general area and start doing other things in the cell, such as inhibiting the transport of glucose into the cell and inhibiting the transport of fatty acids into the mitochondria. Now, you might look at these processes and say, well, if the need for ATP is regulating the citric acid cycle like the ability to make ATP does, then maybe the need for ATP should also be providing information that allows the cell to control whether glucose is taken up into the cell and fatty acids into the mitochondrion. In fact, there is such a system that works to accomplish exactly that. In addition to being hydrolyzed to ADP, ATP can also be hydrolyzed to AMP. ATP is adenosine triphosphate, ADP is adenosine diphosphate, and AMP is adenosine monophosphate. It has only one phosphate rather than two or three. And Hydrolyzing ATP directly to AMP 
takes two phosphates off and releases more energy than just taking one phosphate off. And some enzymes do that simply because they have a greater energy need for the reaction that they're catalyzing. But the main source of AMP in the cell is actually to deliberately increase AMP as a signaling molecule during times of energy depletion. And how this happens, again, utilizes that principle that we first talked about in the lesson on enzymes, that the rate of the chemical reaction is going to be proportional to the concentration of the reactants. So the more ATP gets utilized, the more ADP and phosphate you have. There's another enzyme called adenylate kinase that takes two ATP molecules and takes the phosphate from one of them and adds it to the other, making the one that got it added, ATP, and the one from which it was taken away, AMP. If energy utilization produces more ADP, then you have more ADP for this reaction to go forward, and it's going to go forward proportionally. In fact, to add a little bit of detail here, it actually will increase in proportion to the square of ADP. And that's because the reaction rate is going to be proportional to each reactant multiplied by the other. And ADP times ADP would be ADP squared. So it's not, it's not increasing linearly, it's increasing exponentially in proportion to the square of ADP. So as you get a little bit of ADP, you get more AMP, but as you start burning through energy at a higher rate, you're going to get an exponential increase in AMP. One of the key sensors of cellular energy status that coordinates a multitude of cellular activities in response to the energy status of the cell is AMP kinase. Remember, a kinase is an enzyme that hydrolyzes ATP in order to phosphorylate something else. And remember that phosphorylation is often a cascade where the phosphorylation of one thing may affect the phosphorylation of many other things. Well, AMP kinase, which we often just abbreviate AMPK, is inhibited to a small degree by ATP, but it's named after AMP because it's massively activated by AMP. So when you're using up more energy and the concentration of ATP declines, you lose the modest inhibition of AMPK that's mediated by ATP but you gain the massive stimulation of AMPK mediated by AMP. When AMPK is activated, it coordinates a signaling cascade that coordinates multiple activities of the cell, including the uptake of glucose from the blood into the cell and the transport of fatty acids into the mitochondrion. And so when the cell needs more energy, because it's using energy at a higher rate, not only does it speed up the activity of the citric acid cycle, 
but it also tells the cell to take in more glucose and to take fatty acids and bring them into the mitochondrion. And it's a good thing because if you didn't bring in more energy, how much longer could you operate the citric acid cycle before you run out of energy molecules? So what AMPK is doing is essentially the inverse of hydrogen peroxide. If the mitochondrion is overburdened with the demand for energy, it releases reactive oxygen species as a call for help. And they shut down the transport of glucose into the cell and the transport of fatty acids into the mitochondrion. But when the cell needs more ATP because it's burning energy at a higher rate, burning through it all, AMPK does the exact opposite, stimulating glucose entry into the cell and taking fatty acids into the mitochondrion. An interesting example of where these signaling pathways can intersect is in exercise. In exercise, you are producing more reactive oxygen species because you're demanding that the mitochondrion metabolize more energy molecules to make ATP. But at the same time, because you're burning through all the ATP, you're also activating AMPK. And in this case, the activation of AMPK is going to override the inhibitory effects of H2O2 on energy metabolism. But if you think back to what hydrogen peroxide does to mitochondrial biogenesis, hydrogen peroxide makes you make more mitochondria. Well, it turns out that through a rather complex signaling cascade, AMPK also activates pathways that feed into mitochondrial biogenesis. So in that particular sense, reactive oxygen species and AMPK, which are in many ways in conflict with one another, in that particular case, they're aligned. So if you think about what happens when you exercise, you're actually stimulating glucose getting taken up from the blood into the cells in the absence of insulin. We'll talk a lot more in later lessons about how insulin plays into this. But actually, in exercise, you're in essentially a hypocaloric state. And you've got adrenaline pumping, which is counteracting the effects of insulin. So insulin signaling is really low, and yet you're taking more glucose up into the muscle cell. Why? Because the muscle cell needs it. We'll talk later about how, yes, hormones communicate the needs of the body to the muscle cell or to any other cell, but the cells also make their own decision for their own needs. And exercising skeletal muscle needs more glucose and needs more fatty acids to make more ATP, and so it's gonna do it. At the same time, the energy deprivation and the increased reactive oxygen species are both gonna stimulate pathways that tell the cell to make more mitochondria. And so after you exercise and you get home and you rest, you refeed, you play, you sleep, and you give your body what it needs to recover, all of that signaling from the energy deprivation and the reactive oxygen species are gonna help you make more mitochondria. And then when you go out and exercise next time, that running or lifting or whatever you did is gonna be a little bit easier 
because your body has now decided that it's going to react to that stress by helping you accommodate similar stressors in the future. And that is what we call fitness. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. Between this lesson and the last one, we've now seen how the cell regulates the activity of the citric acid cycle and the electron transport chain together according to the abilities of the electron transport chain to handle the demands placed on it and the needs of the cell for ATP. In the next lessons, we'll continue picking apart these details of the citric acid cycle to look at other aspects of how they fit into the entire system and how they relate to human health. If you want to continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn, on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn, or on my website at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash biochemistry. All right, I hope you enjoyed this lesson and found it useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Master John, and I will see you in the next lesson.